1: I'm glad you could join us today. Going to make it worth your while. All right. It's, uh, you know, it's a Friday. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I could be phoning it in, but actually I'm, I'm just, I'm fighting this sense of urgency because it's a Friday and there is so much going on and there are so many different topics that I want to cover. I can't possibly do it in the time that I have left. So that means I have to make choices. And I'm going to try and give you some information that I hope you'll find worthwhile, thought-provoking, empowering, and worth sharing. Where to begin? Let's start with the ideological purge of the unwoke taking place right now in America. Now, you don't have to look very far to see this. It used to be. Yeah, that was mainly confined to college campuses. And, you know, that's where political correctness was strictly enforced. No more. I mean, it's it's spreading to virtually every facet of our society. Corporate America thoroughly woke. You know, anywhere you go in public, you just you have to be so careful. Case in point, I just was seeing this this incredible hysteria that came up the other day. Um, apparently, one of the the Jeopardy contestants, a, a winner, was uh, was making. He was holding up fingers. Is what he was doing. He was asked. Um, he, he's won three games. He held his thumb and forefinger to, to thumb and forefinger together with the other three fingers extended, pace his palm palm facing inward rather, and tapped his chest, signifying three games he had won on jeopardy now you can guess what the woke saw what he's holding up three fingers well he's either a flashing support for an anti-government group known as the three percenters okay possible i don't know if he was in camel maybe maybe you can make that case uh but no what they're saying is he actually was flashing a white supremacist hand sign okay they see it everywhere it's the kind of conversation these, these white supremacists, are, are, are they in the room with us right now? Of course, depending on the color of your skin, their answer is going to be yes. I'm looking at one. Anyway, 467 purported former participants on Jeopardy! have posted an open letter on Medium accusing the syndicated game show's producers of failing to catch this contestant, Kelly Donahue, using what they call a white power hand gesture. Look, if he had been saying something patently offensive, you know, dropping the N-word or something like that, that would be one thing. But since he won three games and was indicating he had won three games, maybe, just maybe, three fingers meant those three games. But see, there are people who are willing to make a deal of this. They want to cancel him. They want to cancel, you know, they, they want to punish the producers. The point is simply this. When you have that kind of intense pressure being brought to bear, it's it's not to correct a wrong. In fact, I want to share with you this this is an observation from a friend of mine. Todd Furse posted this on Facebook earlier this week, and this is one of the best descriptions of the the problem, and I mean the fundamental flawed premise that is the problem behind critical race theory and other woke movements. He says the problem lies in the fact that once implemented. They become a way for certain entities to just exercise dominion over anyone who doesn't fall precisely in line with their worldview. And as you can see, there is no gnat so small that they won't strain at it. While swallowing the camel of their own behavior towards people that is, you know, by any objective measure, racist. Because it's so hyper-focused on race race and racial characteristics. Todd says such philosophies become tools wherein even if someone is personally innocent of true bigotry, when they don't follow the party line that benefits the movement, they can be accused of being racist, homophobic, or whatever, and thus be disenfranchised in some way. In other words, if you don't tow our line, we have a reason to boot you out. So in education, when it becomes re-education, parties seeking to shut down descending thought in society can educate children to disavow literally any philosophy that doesn't support their agenda. And they do this without giving any opposing ideas the light of day whatsoever. Further, he says such entities can indirectly shut down any organization with whom they have differences or with whose philosophies they see as threatening to their political power. All they have to do is teach children that an unapproved organization, for instance, their family's church, embraces ideas that are racist, homophobic, anti-environment, whatever, based on a litmus test provided by whatever enlightened understanding can be used to eliminate dissent. Now, Todd warns here, he says, if you don't think this is a real danger, you haven't actually studied history. All one needs to do is understand any to understand any problem in society is to figure out who profits by its existence in some way. And you think about who is who is profiting from this this strife and this conflict that's being you know ginned up in support of so-called social justice? I mean, I think there are an awful lot of people who are wrongly being accused of harboring you know ill intention, and more often than not, you know the the, the strident tone of the people who are accusing them seems to reveal that uh, you know they're they're merely projecting their own passions or their own flaws. Onto the people around them. Got another great gem here from Tom Cranawitter. This, too, was on Facebook. And he makes the case here that critical race theorists and their many minions who now provide training in government offices or schools or corporate boardrooms reject policies and principles of non-discrimination. Yeah, they're the ones who claim that, well, we have to discriminate. It's, it's the only way that we can fix the problem of discrimination. Mm, I know that's 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 the logic. But when you look at how they do what they do, Tom Cranowitter makes the case. Look at it. They, they they reject equal protection of the laws. They reject the idea of equal individual, natural and civil rights, private property, free speech. None of those things matter if you are in disagreement with them. You have to be denied all of them because you are not in line with their uniform way of thinking. They reject open competition in which everyone's free to compete based on merit. He says critical race theorists reject all these things as mere disguises for white supremacy, white oppression, white paternalism. But he says in truth, it's the critical race theorists who are the real paternalists. The reason being they assume entire populations of black citizens, brown citizens, LGBT citizens and others cannot govern themselves, cannot learn, cannot be productive, cannot create new wealth, cannot improve their own lives and the lives of their children, cannot compete with white people in the rough-and-tumble world of business, cannot even vote without race-based preferences and discrimination enshrined in public policy. All designed by critical race theorists. Isn't that great how that works out? Now, Tom Cranowitter comes right out and just says, shame on them. Shame on everyone who's peddling this thinly veiled Marxism and divisive progressive central planning. And he pleads, don't trade the precious principles of liberty for the fad of critical race theory. If you find yourself in a school or a government training session or a corporate diversity reeducation program, and you don't know how to refute the injustices advocated by critical race theory or defend the principles of freedom and human flourishing... Well, Tom says, call on me. I am to critical race theory what medicine is to sickness. The healer. <laughs> He's right, though. The man knows his stuff. If I, need a, if I needed a lifeline, that's the guy I would want to call. Good stuff. So let me, let me give you a little glimpse of hope, though. Because I, I'm watching this unfold, and it's just getting uglier by the day. The cancel culture mob is just, they're ready to go after anybody at a, at a moment's notice. And when you see that kind of ideological purge of the unwoke that's taking place, you have to remember things that go up quickly tend to come down quickly as well. I've got a great article here by Sarah Weaver that explains when the cheap, angry trends have died out. You know what's going to remain? The classics. Now, she's talking about books here. But uh, I'm guessing this is something that you may not realize is a, is a tremendous resource in helping you better understand the world about you around you rather. It doesn't matter if that classic was written, you know, 3,300 years ago. You need to you need to be able to order your thinking to where you are doing the job of sifting fact from fiction, truth from error, largely for yourself. You know, with some help from other great thinkers. Sarah Weaver explains the classics are classics for a reason, and they offer valuable time-worn lessons about humanity itself. Okay, so what is it that makes the classics relevant in our time? And and in a word, it's because you can find wisdom. Now, general knowledge can become obsolete in the same way we don't ride horses to work, you know, much these days. You know, things change around us, and some things that are, are, you know, knowledge of the time eventually go out of style. Wisdom, however, stands the test of time, meaning it's going to be true in whatever circumstance, whatever time you find yourself in. It's still going to hold true. The classics have a lot of it. When we come back, I'm going to share with you some excerpts from Sarah Weaver's article, which you'll also find in the show notes at thebryanhideshow.com.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: All right, welcome back to the show. I'm going to share this article by Sarah Weaver. When the cheap, angry trends have died out, the classics will remain. Now, you may think this is very simplistic, and you may actually disagree. Why, why would books matter so much when the world is falling apart around us? And that is a fair question. But I think after you hear some of the points that Sarah has to make here, you'll understand that with everything around us that is shifting, everything that's changing, things you were able to think or even say, you know, without any embarrassment or apology, even just a couple of years ago, now are caused to be canceled by the cancel culture mob. So where is something that is more sure-footed? Where is a place you can put your feet where the sand doesn't seem to be shifting right under them? The answer is the classics. Here's what uh, Sarah Weaver has to say. She says, we were excited to see the sign at the Lansing Mall, Barnes & Noble Booksellers. She and her roommate were on on their spring break excursion, shopping in another city when they spotted the national bookselling chain, and they envisioned a long hour of perusing the great books from Cicero to Tolstoy, Shakespeare to Dickens, Plato to Faulkner. In fact, she says her roommate joked she never made it out of a bookstore without purchasing at least one volume. After walking through a maze of board games, Harry Potter paraphernalia, and $10 romance novels, we found the classics section. Now that section is in air quotes here, or in in quotation marks. A barely 10-foot wide corner where Hamlet was shoved up beside Catcher in the Rye in an uneven pile. For all the store owners and its patrons cared, the sign at the top could have just read Old Stuff. Sarah says perhaps booksellers who neglect the demands or who neglect rather the classics are merely responding to market demands. I mean, who wants to read those old white guys anyway? Well, maybe no one does for now. But she says booksellers should still put their time and resources towards presenting their customers the greatest literature of the Western world. Recently, the historically black college, Howard University, dissolved its classics department as part of prioritization efforts at the college. But as Harvard professor of philosophy, Cornell West and CEO of the classic learning test, uh, Jeremy Tate, said in an op-ed for The Washington Post, academia's continual campaign to disregard or neglect the classics is a sign of spiritual decay, moral decline and a deep intellectual narrowness running amok in American culture. Wow. Is that ever on target? In fact, as the op-ed pointed out, many black civil rights leaders such as Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King Jr. have praised and benefited from reading the classics. Indeed, reading and studying the classics is how we become our full selves, spiritually free and morally great. That's according to Weston Tate. By the way, this is absolutely true. And I'm not just saying that because, yeah, that's a good idea to makes sense to me. I'm saying it because I have seen it apply in the lives of other people, including in my own life. What happens when we come face to face with greatness in the form of the great minds that came before us? That's how you become the best version of yourself. And part of it is becoming a truly good person, a person of great character. So you can see why there is a spiritual consideration as well as a moral consideration here. Sarah Weaver writes, the classics are classics for a reason. Western society didn't randomly decide that certain people in certain periods would write the books students would begrudgingly skim for lit class centuries later. The classic books, whether from the classical period itself, like the Odyssey, or written centuries later, Oliver Twist, Huckleberry Finn, say something about humanity itself. She asks, who hasn't felt the irresistible call of the siren song and thanked his foresight in removing the means to act on that temptation as Ulysses did? Who hasn't witnessed the complete failure of government-run charity to actually alleviate poverty? Oliver Twist explores the implications of such failure through the story a, life story of a young boy living in an infamous London poorhouse. In Huckleberry Finn, Mark Twain exposes the lies of the racist, slaveholding South by viewing it through the lens of a young boy viewing the hypocrisy for what it is. Sometimes the renewing force of youth exposes the moral decay of civilization. She says the classic books deal with problems that exist no matter the historical circumstances, feelings of alienation, greed, the inevitability of evil and death, and the imperative of goodness and eternal life. No iPhone can take that away. Sarah Weaver writes the eternal human lessons discussed in the classics are why those books last. On Medium.com, Spencer Baum writes about the importance of reading classic literature. Focusing on the timeless lessons of Moby Dick, Baum puts it well. After you've read Moby Dick, if you took the time to truly grapple with it, you'll start to recognize Ahab whenever he shows up in your own life. Ahab is the wounded man who seeks vengeance against the inanimate forces of nature by succumbing to the fatal promise to be as gods. A promise that harkens to the opening chapters of the biblical book of Genesis. Now, Sarah Weaver says the layout of the bookstore was telling. In barely five years, all the books displayed in places of prominence will become irrelevant. The next book about being a hashtag girl boss or Lord of the Rings fan fiction will take its place. As Shakespeare himself would say, popular but transient books will be hoisted on their own petard. She says, when I spoke about this phenomenon with another friend some weeks later, he mentioned a book published in 1970, The Greening of America by Charles Reich, which was massively popular when it came out. And Sarah says, I'd never heard of it. Indeed, when the author died two years ago, obituaries had to remind readers who he was and why at one point his book was important. Ultimately, she says, it's not that such books don't serve a purpose and aren't even important to write or read. It's that they almost always don't warrant the disproportionate attention they receive upon release in comparison to the classics. The classics will last Few read Greening Greening of America anymore, or few read that anymore, but despite the best efforts of the censors, we will continue to read To Kill a Mockingbird for decades, even centuries to come. For, true, some schools have removed the book from study for supposedly depicting Atticus Finch, Finch as a white savior, but To Kill a Mockingbird is so much deeper than the censors make it out to be. Among other things, To Kill a Mockingbird explores the striking contrast between innocence and evil. A Scout confronts the harsh realities of racism in the adult world as a young child. She says to kill a mockingbird answers the question: How can one choose to be good in a world where evil runs amuck? Maybe once the truly permanent nature of the classics is revealed, Barnes and Noble, along with our public consciousness, will again give the classics the place of prominence they deserve. To quote the now cancelled Rudyard, Rudyard Kipling rather, "The gods of the copybook headings will, with terror and slaughter, return." Now, Sarah Weaver says in the recent Netflix film Moxie, a teenage feminist questions why the great Gatsby was assigned for summer reading. Why are we still reading this book? She asks. It's written by some rich white guy about some rich white guy. To which Sarah Weaver says, how simplistic. Perhaps if she had removed her feminist reading lens, this young radical would have found something worth remembering in Fitzgerald's book. More than a story of a man obsessed with the only girl he can't have, as the student summed it up. The Great Gatsby explores the implications of a life lived for pleasure, the promises and failures of the American dream, and the empty refinement of social stratification. Indeed, she says if the activist of Moxie wants social revolution out of her novels, she should read the following passage from Gatsby. Quote, They were careless people, Tom and Daisy. They smashed up things and creatures and then retreated back into their money or their vast carelessness or whatever it was that kept them together. And let other people clean up the mess they had made. Well, there's only one appropriate word for that quote, says Sarah Weaver. Classic. What a great article. I've got a link to it in today's show notes. You can find them at the show.com. I just, I can't tell you how important it is to have good books on your bookshelves. And by the way, I say this as someone right now who's having to go through his bookshelves and decide which of my good books am I going to keep because I'm, I'm getting ready to make a move and trying to uh, pare things down to where, you know, my stuff doesn't own me quite to the degree that it has, has to today. And that's one of the hardest things for me because there are a lot of these books that I'm like, okay, I don't regularly crack open the Odyssey. <laughs> I just, you know, I'm not reading as much Homer as I probably should be these days. But if I knew that I was only going to have one set of books for an extended period in my home... I think I'd want the classics of Western literature because there is some real treasure to be found there. And it's been true for many thousands of years.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian Hyde Show.
1: Hey, welcome back to the show. And a quick shout out for my sponsors, including MonticelloCollege.org. That's a great place, by the way, to get a good classical liberal arts education. And yes, you can even do it by distance if you are so inclined. Also a quick toot of the horn for hslamo.com and pure-light.com. These are wonderful sponsors. You'll find links to them in the show notes at the com, as well as links to all the various articles and commentaries that uh, I discuss in this hour of the program. So, just out of curiosity, if you, I'm assuming that you're listening to this show because at some level you believe that living as a free man or woman is preferable to living as a subject or a slave or a sheep. Can I just ask, though, do you ever feel like you are part of a despised minority? I mean, depending on your experience, you know, some people would be like, oh, absolutely. (laughs) You want to be unpopular? Try to stand up for your freedom. And this has been especially true when, whenever you question or come up against something uh, regarding the official COVID mandates. I look at what's happening to Joe Rogan right now. He made a comment on his podcast a few days ago. And I don't remember who it was he was talking with. But basically, this is the comment that, that Rogan made. When it came to vaccines, he said, look, if you are a healthy 20-something, you're 21 years old, you're working out, you're eating right, you're taking care of yourself. And you were to ask him, Joe... Should I get the COVID vaccine just to be safe? His answer would be no. You have a healthy body that statistically is at far less risk than other parts of the population. And by the way, for those who are at the greatest risk, I just want to remind you that still the survival rate is uh, you know somewhere north of 98%. So don't let your imagination run rampant. But for, for him saying that, well, if they're healthy, I would tell him don't get the vaccine. Oh, my word. The official backlash. I mean, the White House, the, the, the president himself had to mention something about this is terribly irresponsible. How could he say such a thing? Now, look, all I'm going to suggest here is, you know, there are differing points of view on this. And I'm not trying to tell you you shouldn't get a vaccine or that you should. How healthy can it be? When someone simply voicing an opinion, which didn't constitute medical advice, wasn't a hard and fast, never get a vaccine under any circumstances. I think it was a very reasoned and nuanced response. How can it draw so much ire? The only conclusion I can come to is uh, the truth just must not be strong enough to stand on its own. We got to silence those who would question the narrative that everybody gets the vaccine and then everything can go back to how it should be. Because it seems to me that's pretty much what the official message is. So if you have stood up for yourself, whether it's over masks, whether it's over vaccines, whether it's whatever, I'm guessing and I feel pretty confident saying you have probably felt a bit lonely from time to time. And that's really the norm. Well, let's uh, let's have some good news here. Got an article here from Jeffrey A. Tucker from the American Institute for Economic Research. And the good news he has is that the anti-lockdown movement is large and growing. He says, feeling outgunned, outnumbered, overpowered, smothered and censored. Many people who oppose COVID lockdowns and all their associated restrictions feel this way. It's hard not to. You can hardly post on social media without triggering warnings, corrections, sometimes outright blocks. And he says bans are part of the mix too, the complete deplatforming of people merely because they want their freedoms back. He says it's creepy. We never thought we would see these days, but here they are. Meanwhile, the mainstream media continues to push restrictions, mask mandates, and vaccine passports just as it has for the past 14 months. The technology of intimidation is getting more sophisticated, but... He asks, how true is it that anti-lockdown people are just a small, increasingly marginalized minority? Well, consider this evidence. Tucker reports the Wall Street Journal is one of the world's largest circulation newspapers with twice the physical circulation of The New York Times. Its editorial page has been consistently against lockdowns nearly from the beginning. Fox News has been running anti-lockdown commentary for a full year. It very easily dominates all cable TV news, hosting six of the top ten shows. It's trouncing CNN, for example, which is struggling for viewers. The top-rated commentary show for this year and last has been Tucker Carlson Tonight, which offers gripping anti-lockdown interviews and commentary on every show, including interviews with scientists and activists left and right. Elon Musk, one of the most prominent tech entrepreneurs in the world, has fiercely spoken out against lockdowns. Joe Rogan has the most popular podcast in the English language, and he has been consistently against lockdowns and COVID mandates for a year. Most recently telling his audience the common sense point that healthy young people should not be forced to be vaccinated since the virus is no threat to them. He also points out how The Onion once ruled satire on the web But the site has been terrible on lockdowns. Its traffic has been sinking steadily. The anti-lockdown Babylon Bee started low and has soared to new heights, often beating the onion. The Babylon Bee has been ruthless in satirizing COVID hysteria and is being rewarded for doing so. The Epoch Times has as much web traffic as the Wall Street Journal and has been fantastic on lockdowns, including running a full 45 minute long interview with Great Barrington Declaration signatory. Jainata, Jainata, let me try that again. Jayanta Bhattacharya. He also points out how polls show strong opposition to all stringency measures among Republicans. Forty percent want immediate opening of everything and much less opposition among Democrats. Now, he says it's tragic and wrong that there should be any partisan divide on what is a question of science and good sense. But that's what happens when you politicize a disease. Also, he points out how the scientists who drafted the Great Barrington Declaration were pilloried last year, but now cannot come close to keeping up with interviews, testimonies, article requests and media contacts. Last year, this time. They were quiet scientists. Now they are among the most famous epidemiologists in the world. Even the CDC is playing catch up to the anti-lockdown position, adjusting its advice on the J&J vaccine in light of Martin Koldorf's article in The Hill, even as they shoved him off their vaccine evaluation commission. Now, Jeffrey Tucker also points out that protests are rarely reported by the national media, but they are happening. The Five Freedoms campaign pushed by the Daily Clout is gaining traction. Those freedoms are no vaccine passports, no mask mandates, no emergency law, open schools up 100 percent and freedom of commerce, worship and petition. And finally, he points out how noncompliance is nationwide. Many parts of the country were speakeasies since last April, but now the push to live life normally is spreading even to New York, where the hardcore scene this past weekend publicly flouted all regulations and is thus being investigated. So it would be safe to say that uh, the the tide is turning in favor of those of us who do not support lockdowns. Jeffrey Tucker says the most important reason why anti-lockdowners should not feel demoralized is that the facts are overwhelming on the side of freedom and traditional public health principles. And from here, he has a number of different charts illustrating what happens with Massachusetts versus Michigan versus Texas versus Florida. You have to see these to check them out for yourself. But suffice it to say, there is plenty of data to draw upon that shows locking down a society, mandating this, mandating that, has no discernible impact on how the virus spreads throughout a society. In other words, the vi- the trajectory of the virus follows a common pattern. Reducing in severity as it mutates over time and herd immunity creates endemicity through natural immunity and vaccines. That's the same path a respiratory virus has followed for the last hundred years. Not surprising. In fact, Jeffrey Tucker says perhaps the only real surprise in the data is how completely the how the completely open states did not perform badly compared with the closed states. Texas is a case, case in point. It's open with no disaster. So the lesson, lockdown policies failed to protect the vulnerable and otherwise did little to nothing actually to suppress or otherwise control the virus. By the way, the American Institute for Economic Research has assembled fully 35 different studies revealing no connection between lockdowns and disease outcomes. In addition, the Heritage Foundation has published an outstanding roundup of the COVID experience revealing lockdowns were largely political theater, distracting from from what should have been good public health practice. Finally, it appears that even Mayor Bill de Blasio is promising a, quote, full reopening of New York City by July 1st. Now, that's a change he credits to vaccines, which is fine but unprovable, but also reflects a huge shift in public opinion. Other states are racing to open as well. These people track polls because they sense the shift. He says, here's what I see coming in the next year, or in the rest of the year, rather. Once most everything is opened and more and more people calm down from the disease panic, there will be a realization slow at first, then all at once that what happened over these past 14 months was a catastrophic disaster of public health without a precedent. The collateral damage is unfathomable. He says the reason why the lockdown advocates are intensifying their perception and exercise of hegemony right now is to forestall the possibility that the entire lockdown praxis will fall into massive disrepute. They will not get their way. And he says, let the blowback begin. By the way, waiting for someone to give you permission to resume normal life ain't going to happen. Resume your normal life. And watch how quickly they come around and say, well, we were just going to give that back to you anyways. Because they know they can't stop you.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: All right. Welcome back to the show. All right. Here's here's a thought for you. If you knew that there was someone who was out to uh, amass and consolidate as much power over you as possible, what would you do about it? Would you I mean, would you just simply, well, I guess I'll just have to vote smarter next time. And, you know, uh, (laughs) my gosh, (laughs) we'll win the next one around, I guess. Or would you take a little firmer stance and say, you know what? That's not going to fly. This will not work for me. saw a comment uh, just recently that uh, really caught my attention. And it was something along the lines of, you know what? If we live in a time where, you know, you can give your kid a sex change operation and you have all of this craziness going on, and it's only wrong to uh, to believe that there's such a thing as right and wrong... You are under no obligation to follow rules when the rules are being handed to you by essentially a a serial killer. Well, that's a that's a big nope. Nope, not going to do it. But how do you actually escape those plans? This is where voting with your feet may be an option. Got a great article here from Jeff Thomas. This was published on LewRockwell.com earlier today. He says, the concept of government is that the people grant to a small group of individuals the ability to establish and maintain controls over them. But the inherent flaw in such a concept is that any government will invariably and continually expand upon its controls, resulting in the ever-diminishing freedom of those who granted them the power. For instance, he says, when I was a schoolboy, I was taught that the feudal system of the Middle Ages consisted of the serfs tilling small plots of land that belonged to a king or lord. The serfs lived a meager life of bare subsistence and were subject to the tyranny of the king or lord whose men would ride into their village periodically and take most of the few coins the serfs had earned by their toil. Now the lesson I was meant to learn from that was that I should be grateful that in the modern world I live in a state of freedom from tyranny and as an adult I would pay only that level of tax that could be described as fair... But he says later in life, I was to learn that in the actual feudal system, some land was owned by noblemen, some by common men. The commoners typically farmed out their own land or farmed their own land, while the noblemen parceled out their land to farmers in trade for a portion of the product of their labors. As part of that bargain, the no- noblemen would pay for an army of professional soldiers to both protect the farms and the farmers. Significantly unlike today, no farmer was required to defend the land himself because it was not his. Now, there was no exact standard as to what the nobleman would charge a farmer under his agreement, but the general standard was one day's labor in 10. Now, this was not an amount imposed or regulated by any government. The nobleman could charge as much as he wished. However, if he raised his rate significantly, he would find that farmers would leave and move to another nobleman's farm. So the 10% was in essence a rate that evolved over time through a free market. Now, today, of course, most companies, if most countries, rather, uh, levied an income tax of a mere 10%. There would be dancing in the streets. And the days of one simple, straightforward tax, however, are gone. Long gone. Jeff Thomas says today the average person may be expected to pay property tax, even if he's a renter, sales tax, capital gains tax, value-added tax, inheritance tax, and so on. The laundry list of taxes is so long and so complex that it's no longer possible to compute what the total tax level is for anyone. And to this we add the hidden tax of inflation. In the U.S., for example, the Federal Reserve has over the last 100 years devalued the dollar by 98%. That's a pretty hefty tax indeed, and the U.S. is not alone in this. Over fi- only 50 years ago, the average man might work a 40-hour week to support a wife who remained at home raising the children. He often had a mortgage on his home, but might have it paid off in 10 years. He paid cash for nearly everything else that he and his family owned or consumed. Today, both husband and wife generally must be employed full-time. In spite of this, they can't afford as many children as their parents could, and they generally remain in debt their entire lives, even after retirement. This is significant inflation by any measure. In contrast, in the Middle Ages, the cost of goods might remain the same throughout the entire lifetime of an individual. In light of the above, the 10% that was paid by the serfs is actually starting to look very good indeed. However, Jeff Thomas says the great majority of people in the first world are likely to say, what can you do? It's the same all over the world. You might as well get used to it. And his answer is, well, no, actually, it's not. There are many governmental and economic systems out there and quite a a bit more surf friendly than those in major countries. Now, he's talking about places like the British Virgin Islands, the Cayman Islands, Bermuda and the Bahamas, which have no income tax. Further, some have no property tax, no sales tax, capital gains tax, value added tax, inheritance tax and so on. So how is this possible? says The OECD countries state that it's largely accomplished through money laundering, but that's not the case. In fact, low-tax jurisdictions are known to have some of the most stringent banking laws in the world. The success of these jurisdictions is actually quite simple. Most of them are small. They have small populations and therefore only need a small government. Yet each jurisdiction can accommodate large numbers of investors from overseas. This results in a very high level of income per capita. But unlike large countries... The money that is deposited or invested there is overseas money, so it's not captive. Investors can transfer it out overnight if need be. So even if the politicians are no better than those in larger larger countries, rather, generally they are of the same ilk, they're aware that like the noblemen of old, if they attempt to impose taxation, well, business is going to dry up quickly. In fact, such a free market dictates that the jurisdictions keep on their toes and keep trying to outdo their competitors by being more investment friendly. Therefore, politicians in these countries who might be only too happy to promise entitlements to their constituents, then tax them to the hilt in order to pay for entitlements, are instead kept restrained by their own system. Now, are there downsides to living in a low-tax jurisdiction? Yes. As most of them are small but require a very high standard of living in order to attract investors, they must import virtually all goods needed by residents. So that means a higher cost of all goods as compared to the cost in a country that produces such goods. However, however, rather, the wage level is also higher, which tends to balance out the equation. But there are upsides. Those who move to such a jurisdiction find that after the first year, when the basics like cars, televisions, etc. have been paid for, all further income that was has been saved from taxation is beginning to get deposited in the bank. And at some point, the deposit level becomes great enough that investment becomes advisable. And as low-tax jurisdictions tend to be naturally prosperous, there's generally no limit to the opportunities for investment within the jurisdiction. Now there's a further benefit to living in a low-tax jurisdiction that tends to become apparent over time. Any government that depends on major investments from overseas parties must, out of necessity, be non-intrusive and non-invasive. Such a government stays out of people's business, eschews electronic monitoring, and most certainly is not given to SWAT teams crashing down doors for imagined wrongdoing. Benjamin Franklin famously said nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Now, he was correct, but the level of tax can vary greatly from one country to the next. And just as important, the level of government intervention into the affairs of its citizenry varies considerably. In a country where the level of tax is low, the quality of life is correspondingly, generally, high. A thousand years ago, noblemen from time to time became overly confident in their ability to keep the serfs on the farmland and demanded taxes beyond the customary one day's labor in ten. When they did, the serfs of old often voted with their feet and simply moved. This is still popular today, or possible today, rather. If the reader presently contributes more than one day's labor ten to his government, he may wish to consider voting with his feet. Now, I understand that's not the answer a lot of people are looking for. With, well, how can we solve this problem? Well, move. But is it a viable solution? It absolutely is. I guess the big question is how, you know, how bad would it have to be before you would be willing to say that's enough? <laughs> We're going to go somewhere else where we have a little more control over our own lives. I mean, different people have different reasons for doing it. You know, some parents will do it over education concerns. I know families who have packed up and left certain states where uh, medical cannabis was strictly prohibited to go to states where it was available to them. And maybe a loved one who's fighting a life-threatening illness. I mean, this is a decision you have to make for yourself. By the way, there is one other article I'm including in today's show notes, and I hope you'll find the time to read it. It's uh, from a writer named Vasco Kohlmeyer, who uh, grew up under communism. And when anybody who actually lived under communism speaks up about, hey, these are the warning signs of totalitarian government, I tend to pay attention because this is someone who's speaking from experience rather than just theory or, you know, parroting some talking point. So Vasco Kohlmeyer warns of the behaviors that accompany tyranny as well as the underlying and flawed premises of wokeism. And if you want to better understand what is happening to the West right now, I think you'll find this article very worth your time. That's going to do it for today. Thanks again for being a listener. Please subscribe to the podcast. Let your friends know about us. Stop by and tell my sponsors thank you for making this show possible. We'll catch you on the next episode. This is The Brian Hyde Show.